Well, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you remember when uh, Lance Armstrong finally admitted to using performance-enhancing drugs? Remember that? That was a big day and for me and for a lot of other people, I think. That day was really quite a shock. I mean, for so long, he'd spoken out against the allegations that were against him, against doping in the sport in general. And suddenly, this icon of cycling, this guy who, who represented our country, who represented us on the world stage in the Tour de France for many, many years, he was exposed because he wasn't who we thought he was. And so that happens pretty often, you know, where we get this persona uh, of our heroes that we trust and that we love. But then we find out that they're people just like us, sinners just like us who struggle and, and who sin. And it can be devastating when that happens. And, and so really for me, one of the re refreshing things about scripture, the refreshing thing, things about the Bible is, is its honesty about the heroes of faith. And here's three examples for you before we get into our reading for today. Uh, the first one is Moses. Remember, this is the guy that God chooses to lead his people out of Egypt, to lead them toward the, the promised land. It's the guy that God spoke to personally in the burning bush, and the guy that later on, Scripture says, speaks to God as one speaks to a friend. But he doesn't come off very well in Exodus 3 through 5. <clears throat> I mean, when, when he's called originally, he has nothing but excuses for God, doubting God can do anything through him. And when he goes to Pharaoh for the first time, the meeting makes everything worse for the Israelites, so much so that at the end of chapter 5, here's what he says, why did you ever send me? You have not delivered your people at all. So Moses may be the hero that God uses in the book of Exodus, but the Bible is pretty clear that, that he has his doubts as to whether God is going to deliver in chapter 5. Next to Moses, as far as icons in the Old Testament go, I, uh, sorry, Isaiah, of course I would say Isaiah. Elijah is probably number two. He, he, he's this big prophet in the Old Testament. He's faithful to God in a very difficult time. But even Elijah is found to be running away from his calling, fleeing to the mountain of God and unsure what to do in the middle of his ministry when things aren't going very well. The king and the queen had both rejected God. They'd led the people to do the same thing. They killed all the prophets. And Isaiah, or Elijah says that he's the last one, and now they're after him too. <clears throat> they were seeking his life as well. And the question before him really is whether or not he can go on, whether or not he can keep going in his ministry. Elijah may, be, it may have been the hero that God used, but in 1 Kings 19, even he had his doubts that God was with him, and that God was going to preserve him. And then there's Jeremiah. He, he comes a couple hundred years after Elijah does his ministry, and, and he's the author of the longest book of the Bible, if you count in terms of words. And like Elijah, he's a prophet in a dark time. He lives in this time of apostasy, this time when uh, he knows that Israel is going to be destroyed, or sorry, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. His people are going to be starved and murdered, and, and the survivors of the, the siege are going to go into exile. It's a dark time in Israel's history. And I think worst of all for him, when he told everybody that this stuff was coming, nobody listened. 
And he got frustrated, so much so that in chapter 20 of the book of Jeremiah, right at the very end, God accuses, or sorry, Jeremiah accuses God of having deceived him. See, Jeremiah may be the hero that God used, but he had his doubts as to whether or not God was actually using him. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat its heroes. And there's a long history of that in Scripture. So it should really come to, uh, as no surprise to us that in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist asks the question that he asks. Here's what he says through his disciples. Are you the one, this, he's talking to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? That's what he says. Are, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Now, people have debated what this means and why he's asking this question for many, many years. But I think the most natural way to understand it is actually pretty simple. John the Baptist has his doubts. He's expressing doubt. And when I think, you know, when, when I think of this reading in that way, it can kind of seem like a Lance Armstrong kind of moment. You know, one of those moments that we have this hero, John the Baptist, and, and, and he of all people is expressing doubt. I mean, this is the guy who's the forerunner of Jesus. This is the guy who baptized all of Jerusalem, and, and in fact, who baptized even Jesus himself. He's the first guy to preach Jesus as the Christ, the coming of the kingdom of God. And this guy can doubt? This guy can ask that question? Now, the answer, of course, is yes, because the Bible doesn't sugarcoat its heroes. And it should be no, no real surprise to us that a hero of faith can also wrestle with doubt. And, you know, when you think about it, can you really blame John? Think about the situation that he's in for a minute. First of all, here's two things. First of all, Jesus hears that John was arrested in Matthew 4.12. That's the verse right after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. It's before he's done anything. At that point, he hasn't done any healings. He hasn't done any miracles. Uh, he hasn't done any preaching. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount starts in the very next uh, chapter, Matthew chapter 5. And so John hasn't seen any of this stuff himself. All he has to go on is the word of those people who have. That's thing number one. And thing number two, re remember who John is. And that's an important point here. Remember who John is. He's the guy who's supposed to usher in the Messiah. He's the guy who's supposed to, to, to bring in the guy who brings in the kingdom of God. And here John is sitting in prison. And he's sitting in prison, not because Jesus, the guy who, who uh, John says, here comes the king, not because Jesus says he should be sitting in prison. He's sitting in prison because Herod, the one who's ruling Israel, under Caesar, by the way, says that he should be there. In other words, from John's perspective, this doesn't look very much like the kingdom of God at this point. So here in Matthew chapter 11, we find John the Baptist asking this question of Jesus, and we find him asking it from a position that is frankly very much like ours. And here's what I mean. We also don't have personal experience with Jesus. We weren't there. In fact, we don't have anything to go on except for the word of those people who were. And we live in a world where sometimes the church seems pretty weak at least in comparison to the government. We live in a world where the church doesn't look very much like the kingdom of God. And so we may sometimes find ourselves in a place where we can understand John the Baptist's doubts. 
You know, we don't talk about doubt very often in church. Sometimes it almost seems taboo, and I'm not exactly sure why. Because, I mean, to be honest, doubt is part of a, being a Christian. Wrestling with doubt is part of being a Christian because as imperfect people, sinful people who live in a broken world, doubt is going to come, just like it did to the heroes of faith. As sinners who don't, as Luther put it, fear, love, and trust in God as we should, wrestling with doubt is part of the Christian life. It happens. And according to Christian philosopher Charles Taylor, it probably happens more and more. It's getting easier to doubt. He, he wrote this great book called A Secular Age. And, and in the book, he asked the question, why 500 years ago it was so easy to be in God, believe in God? It was so easy to be a Christian. And why it's so hard today? Now, a big part of the answer probably doesn't surprise us very much. He says a big part of it was that 500 years ago, there was a lot of social pressure to be in the church, a lot of social pressure to be a Christian. And today it's the opposite. There's a lot of social pressure to doubt. And we know this, you know, church attendance largely is down all over the place. Those outside the faith have become much more vocal about being outside the faith. It seems in so many ways so much harder to be a person of faith today, so much easier to doubt. But I think one thing we have to remind ourselves is doubt is nothing new. In fact, as far as sin goes, it's the oldest thing. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, at the very beginning of the world, doubt is the first temptation. Here's what I mean. Our enemy tempted us to doubt even back then. In fact, that's how the world fall into, fell into sin. Do you remember what he says? He says, did God really say that you can't eat of any tree of the garden? And Eve answers, well, if we do, if we eat from this one tree, God says that we will surely die. You remember what Satan's reply is? He says, you will not surely die. God knows that if you eat of that tree, you're going to be like him, knowing good and evil. The first temptation is the temptation to doubt. It's the temptation to doubt God's word. It's the temptation to doubt God's character. It's the temptation to just doubt God in general. But the thing is, when we look at scripture, God does not stay silent in the middle of doubt. He doesn't simply let these things go. For one thing, and on, on, on a large level, God sends Jesus to defeat our enemy. He sends Jesus to, the, to defeat the one who sows our doubt. Remember, Satan, after all, was the one who worked through Judas to take Jesus to the cross. And the cross definitely does not look like the kingdom of God. Because you've got this humiliated Savior who, who's hanging tortured and murdered on the cross, subject to public shame, public ridicule. He's crowned, but he's crowned with thorns. He's on a throne, but his throne isn't a chair, it's a cross. He's got a purple robe on, but it's one that's covered in blood. It doesn't look like the kingdom of God when Jesus dies until the resurrection. And that's where Jesus' victory over our enemy begins. It's in his resurrection that we see Jesus eliminate all doubt. I mean, any doubt that God was real is destroyed when the Savior who you watched be crucified is risen from the dead. Any doubt that Jesus uh, is back disappears with the nail-scarred hands and feet and the, the spear-pierced side. Any doubt of God's character is destroyed when we see him taking our place on the cross. 
And see, the resurrection is just the beginning of the victory over the enemy, over the one who whispers in our ear that we're wasting our time, the one who whispers in our ear that religion is all really just a power game, that there's really nothing to this whole Christianity thing. The resurrection is the beginning of the victory over that when you've got God's self-sacrifice and his victory over even death. The resurrection is the beginning of that victory, and the end of that victory is coming. But as we struggle to do what James said in our reading for today, to patiently wait for the end, one thing that we remind ourselves today from the Matthew chapter 11 reading is that God is patient in our doubts. You know, when John's disciples bring this question to Jesus, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't reprimand John's disciples or even John himself for the question. He doesn't just send them away. He doesn't say, stop asking this stuff. He doesn't write them off. Jesus gives them something. Here's what he says. He says, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. And then he explains to them that the prophecy from Isaiah 35, the one that was written almost 600 years before Jesus was around, that prophecy is coming true right before their eyes in Jesus' ministry. It's Jesus who gives him what he needs to strengthen his wavering faith. And brothers and sisters in Christ, that is how God acts in the face of doubt. God is patient, and he also gives something. I mean, think back through our examples. When Adam and Eve doubted, when they fell into sin, Genesis 3.15, he gives them the first promise of the Savior. When Moses doubted, the very next thing God does is he restates his call to Moses. When Elijah doubted, God shows up uh, on the mountain, but not before he sends a whirlwind and a fire and uh, a whirlwind and a fire and an earthquake. And when Thomas doubts, God offers, or Jesus offers his hands and his side as evidence that he's resurrected. When Jeremiah doubts, the very next thing that God does is reveals his word to Jeremiah once again. God is patient in our doubts, and God gives us something. In Matthew chapter 11, it's something very relatable that God gives, that Jesus gives. Because he still gives something to John the Baptist. But again, we find John in the very same position that we find ourselves very often. See, Jesus doesn't go to see him in prison that we know of. At least he doesn't do it here. Rather, he sends word back through the eyewitnesses. John's going to die in prison. Just five chapters later, uh, Matthew tells us that story. John's going to die in prison, and as far as we know, he never has anything to go on except the word of the eyewitnesses, the word of the people through whom God speaks to him. And that may not seem like much, but Scripture tells us that God's word does not return to him empty no matter how he sends it to us. And just as he was with, with John and with Thomas and with all the other doubters, God is patient in our doubts too. And he gives us something. And what he gives us happens here. It happens in the Christian community. It happens in our local congregations. One of the gifts God gives you is the people around you, the people to your left and to your right. One of the gifts that God gives you is other Christians. People who know you, know you as part of the body of Christ. People who are connected to you because you're both part of the body of Christ. People who are going to be with you in your life in easy times and in very difficult times. 
People who are going to walk beside you when your faith is strong and when your doubt is strong. And in this Christian community, he gives you exactly what he gave John the Baptist. And that's his word. Spoken to us through eyewitnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Spoken to us again and again and again in the same way as John the Baptist heard it by God's people through whom God works. And so in our doubts, when we find ourselves in the place of John the Baptist, in our doubts, we do what we always do as Christians. We place ourselves in the Christian community where God has placed us. We come to church. We hear the word. We receive God's gifts. And by the way, we bring those doubts to God too. That's what John the Baptist did, right? He sent his disciples to Jesus and Jesus gives. We've talked about a lot of characters in the Bible this morning, and, and there's one other one that I want to bring up. Uh, I don't know his name because his name is never mentioned. It's a nameless father in Mark chapter 9 who's very desperate. And he approaches Jesus about this demon who's been in his son for his son's entire life. He approaches Jesus about getting this demon out of his son. And in the middle of the interaction, in the middle of the exchange between him and Jesus, he says something to Jesus that I think summarizes where John is, where we find ourselves sometimes, and the kind of Christians that I think we'd like to be. In his doubt, he says to Jesus these words, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus gives. So if you're there with John today, if you're there with Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah and Thomas today, I pray that you're going to walk out of here assured that God has sustained and grown his church for 2,000 years so that you personally could hear his word, so that you could hear it today, so that you could hear it next week, so that you could hear it every single week in the Christian community. I pray that you'll dive into this Christian community and find the hope and the assurance that Jesus offers through it and in it. And I pray that in your doubts, the words of that nameless father would be yours too. I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. To God alone be all the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now may the peace of God that passes under all understanding guard our hearts and our minds, keeping them steadfast in Christ Jesus.